Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Musa Yassin, CEO and founder of Pixera, an immersive learning platform that's raised $5.7 million in funding. Musa, thanks for chatting with me today. Thanks, Brett. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. So to kick things off, could we just start with a quick summary of who you are and maybe a bit more about your background? Sure. Yeah, so my name is Musa Yassin. I'm the founder and CEO of Pixera. I've always been a gamer. I relate to World of Warcraft as, as one of my biggest teachers growing up. Uh, I started my career in consulting. I then moved to working for enterprise, a large energy company. And that's where, you know, I was exposed to the difference between like the enterprise world and, and how slow it is and, and the complexities that comes with it compared to what I learned playing games. I started a business after that. I co-founded a business mostly focused on IT services to SMEs. That business started off as a platform, grew to becoming more of a service-oriented business. It's still doing pretty well. And I learned so much from that. You know, I learned the importance of being a leader, uh, how to drive a vision forward, the importance of culture, but it also gave me the confidence, the skills, you know, to know that I can focus on a problem and, and really deliver value and, and succeed. And that that basically drove me to think about the thing I'm passionate passionate about the most. And, and that's how I landed on Pixera. And a couple of questions that we like to ask, really just to better understand what makes you tick as a founder. First one, what founder or CEO do you admire the most and what do you admire about them? So I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, but a founder I really respect is called Tim Sweeney, and he's the founder of Epic Games. And unlike many founders, we work a lot with Unreal Engine, the engine that they've created, and it's just mind-blowing how much passion and energy and love has gone into it. And he's managed to do all this over you know, such a long period of time without having to go public with remaining you know, true to his, his vision and his passion to gaming. And yeah, I think he's, he's overlooked, but he's someone I really respect. You know, my most popular article I've ever written was titled something like why your company needs an enemy. And it was talking about Tim Sweeney. And I think this was maybe three years ago during the summer when he basically declared war on Apple and picked a fight with Apple about you know, all of the, the issues with the App Store. And I think they were trying to charge for, I can't remember the exact deal, but I know they were fighting big with Apple and he you know, brought it into the public light and really picked a fight with Apple. And Apple ended up having to respond. And I think it's still ongoing, but I just really admired how he did that. It was a, a very smart and, and very clever business strategy that he was deploying there. <laughs> yeah, very true. I mean, not many people would do that. Apple did end up winning. But yeah, he's a huge proponent of like, don't be a monopoly, you know, open up your platform to others, uh, just stop trying to control the market. And yeah, I was following that and then uh, something that I was really impressed by too. Again, not, not many people would do that, standing against Apple. Yeah, I think that takes like a, a special type of person and some some balls there, for lack of a better description, mm-hmm. to, to pick a fight with a, a company as big as Apple and as powerful exactly. as Apple. Exactly. What about books? Are there any specific books that have had a major impact on you as a founder? It's a tough one. I tend to read a lot, but the book that stands out when I consider this question is a book called Be Here Now by, by Ram Das, a guy called Richard Albert. He used to be an ex-Harvard professor. I think this book, really helped me reflect on, you know, the nature of reality, the nature of the mind. Don't take things too seriously. Understand that the, that the mind is a reactive machine and try to take a step back from it and, and, you know, stay in a calm, centered space. 
Uh, when I think, yeah, when I think about my favorite book, that's, that changed a lot of my life. Uh, this one usually comes up. Hmm. Super interesting. Now let's switch gears and, and let's dive a bit deeper into Pixera. So can you just provide a high level overview of what the product really does? Of course. So the premise behind Pixera is that, you know, the gaming world is disconnected from the enterprise world. You know, the gaming world is built in a way that the whole ecosystem is around, you know, streamers, getting a lot of players, a specific B2C ecosystem. And it's so far removed from building for long sales cycles, very sophisticated security infrastructures, much lower ecosystems. And the purpose behind Pixera is to literally bring the best in gaming and apply the best in enterprise SaaS to enable a shift from traditional learning methods like video and, and e-learning into interactive 3D gamified gaming products. The origin story behind it is, again, I really believe in the future of gaming and, and the value of gaming to individuals. I think a lot of us feel a sense of guilt when we game, which is something I, I felt growing up. But when I got into the enterprise world, I always knew I had an advantage because of the things I learned playing games. You know, I was communicating with so many people around the world when I was 12, 13. I was a guild leader managing a bank and a group of people from all walks of life critically thinking, problem solving with them. And there's a whole generation growing up playing games. And when I was working in an energy company around 12, 13 years ago, I was around two months into my job. And one of the projects I was involved in had a fatality. And that had a massive impact on me because I always thought that companies teach people safety just out of you know following regulations. I never thought it was a serious topic. And then realizing that an 18-year-old worker actually died super close to where I was working. Shocked me. I realized, you know, the stakes are so high. It's actually pretty serious out there. But the way we still teach people is through, you know, walking them to classrooms and talking to them for an hour and assuming that they understand what we what we're telling them. But beyond that, I deeply believe that gaming in the long term, especially with the technologies of like virtual reality as it, you know, gets to mass adoption over the next five to 10 years is going to transform the way people access very high quality learning content. You know, you don't have to rely on schooling systems, physical infrastructure. You can just put on a pair of goggles and, you know, access the best form of gamified, fun, engaging learning content out there. And that's a future that really excites me. And then, yeah, that's what we're going after hopefully over the next couple of many years, I would say. And how would you summarize the state of VR today? So VR is still at a very early stage. I still think VR is at a, you know, we're still in the Nokia days of the mobile phones. On the other hand, what's important to think about here is the game development market and is a very, very strong space for scalability because you've never been able to create games that are that realistic and high fidelity that can work on a, you know, an iPhone built five, six years ago. You can build very sophisticated games now for any piece of hardware, especially, you know, the average laptops that people use and in major companies with the basic Intel processors. So I think the VR market has proven its core value in, in quite a few areas, especially in its ability to, you know, trigger your emotions, you know, access your subconscious triggers by placing you in certain situations, allowing you to feel a sense of presence with others etc. But the hardware still has a way to go. But the anchors are there. You know, I do believe VR is there to stay. But what's exciting to think about now is gaming as a category because you can leverage what gaming has been so good at for so many years and use that for different valuable 
solutions, you know, solve problems with that and, and scale that with VR being part of your deployment strategy. You know, if some people want to leverage VR, it works on VR as well. But for example, with us right now, we have around 84% of our usage is on computer. VR usage is growing. We're adapting to mobile, which is a Q3 strategy, but you know, we do see our clients investing heavily in VR. And we do believe that in five years, everyone is going to have some sort of a VR strategy and a VR management process internally, et cetera. How far out at VR until it gets to the point that people don't get sick? Because when I bought a headset two years ago, I was super stoked, pulled it out of the box, you know, put it on. And within five minutes, I was sicker than I've probably ever been. Uh, and I can't be alone with that. So how far out do you think that problem is from being solved? Yeah, so it's very interesting you say that because I think some people are way more sensitive than others. But if you try the good, the well-done games on the Quest 2, it's very hard for you to feel nauseous. You know, feeling nauseous usually happens when your subconscious brain thinks there's something wrong. So like when the world that you're like, the inputs that you're receiving from a game don't align with what your brain expects to get. So, you know, bad frame, bad FPS or bad performance in general can trigger that sense of being nauseous. And some people are way more sensitive than others. You might be very, very sensitive to it, but it's a counter and it's, it's something that we wrestle with sometimes when we talk to clients, but the thing we just work towards is getting them to try the product. But for us, we never had a case of someone feeling nauseous because the category we're selling to now are non-gamers, people who sometimes haven't been exposed to any sort of technology beyond the phone. So we've built them in a way that's conscious of that. You know, we, we test so much and we make sure the content is built at extremely high quality in a way that doesn't require you to move around much, you know, very intuitive teleport systems. But yeah, to answer your specific question, I would argue to say VR today actually doesn't make people nauseous, but there are some games out there that are not built well that wrote it for, for the rest of the applications. At the end of the day, it's like an iPhone with so many different applications, different ways to build on it. But the problems it has now are more around, you know, its size, its clunkiness, uh, it hurts your neck sometimes if you wear it for a long time, it gives you a headache sometimes if you wear it for a long time, but it's just moving so fast. You know, the latest headsets are so much better in weight distribution. They're becoming much lighter. They're building the right distance from your face so that you don't sweat as you're using them. But yeah, I think you need to give it another shot. If you have a headset somewhere at home, mm -hmm. I'll just, I'll make sure I'll send you some recommended games and maybe I'll jump in there to play something with you. Sounds That's good. Shit. If I get sick, I'm going to send you a very angry email. <laughs> now on the, on the VR training side, when your users are doing that, what type of hardware are they using? Is it a device like Quest or is it just using their phone inserted into one of those like kind of headsets that you can put on? What does that typically look like? Yeah. So again, we always recommend that our clients start off on computers, right? So all these businesses have an infrastructure that they that they rely on, which is media learning management systems that are integrated across the whole organization globally, where every user accesses the trainings they have to do on a yearly basis, and the data feeds back into that learning management system. The best step we took, and because our our mission initially wasn't to try to just you know build virtual reality products, our mission was to at least get one or two companies to you know, approve making our product their mandatory yearly product for further trainings, which drove us to constantly look at the next thing we had to work on to enable that, you know, to enable the success of that specific mission. So the step we had to take, the first step we had to take is build the right APIs to integrate fluidly with their learning management systems. So 
when employees go to the to that specific place in their learning management system and they fire up uh, a training instead of a video popping up, a game launches just like Roblox does it. You know, if you go to Roblox's website, you click on a game, the game opens up on your computer. So most of our consumption happens that way, and people love it because suddenly they're playing a game and actually walking around the site and and dying, or their colleagues are dying, or they're getting yelled at. You know, it's engaging and it's it's worlds apart from watching a video. But then when clients want to use VR, we always recommend some sort of a VR strategy because they need to start learning how to use VR as a technology, you know, how to manage their headsets globally, and the level of value they get from VR compared to PC. We recommend headsets like the Quest from Meta. That's our main one. So Quest 2 is the main headset we recommend out of experience. I think the other headsets are great, like the Pico 3 is are great. The Vive Focuses are great. But the Quest 2s are the best, and the price point is amazing. It's $400, and everyone loves them. The quality is great. And every client that starts buying a few headsets eventually significantly grows. You know, we have clients who have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of headsets and are constantly buying headsets and are growing their VR strategy because of the higher retention rates, higher engagement rates, and higher value they're seeing in that technology. And I've never been through this type of training, but in my head, I kind of visualize it as like, a super boring video of someone who's like a professor, like sitting in a classroom, just kind of like yelling instructions at you. And you just sit there and take notes and check boxes and then you're done. Is that the status quo? Is that what most of this training looks like? Yeah. So within enterprise, you hit the nail on the head. Trainings are just very, very boring. They always feel like a mandatory requirement that you want to push till the last, you know, the last day you have to do them and your manager ends up getting notified and ends up telling you to do them. And it's it's something that everyone, everyone who's just taken them, either be it compliance or whatever it is, it never feels like you've gained value when you take them. But having said that, the area that excites us the most as the first lever for our business is specifically safety. It's an area I got exposed to a lot. It's an area I'm surprised. Some people understand how big that market is, but over 200 million people have to take safety training at least once a year is, is kind of the short summary of how big safety training is. It's a mandatory regulatory requirement. Over nearly 3 million people die every year in the workplace. And you know the cost for fatality is, is horrible from a cultural morale standpoint, operational efficiency standpoint, like sites have to shut down for a long period of time. And if you prove that someone is safer taking training in a specific way, then over time people will have a responsibility and will end up having to comply with that new method, you know, because you're talking about people's lives. It's not just a good tap or performance improvement. And the interesting thing about safety is that you have standards, global standards that, you know, tens of thousands of companies follow. And these standards are also very similar. So if you do a very good job at being the go-to safety product for the market, then you have a chance to really push the market to convert from one method to another method. And that strategy has been going really, really well for us. Honestly, we if you spoke to me two years ago, I would have told you we're already accessing behavioral trainings, leadership trainings. But right now we're seeing the amount of pull we're getting from safety, especially because of the amount of data you get. But to summarize and to reply to what you said exactly, instead of you going and watching a boring video where you have to press next, 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 you're literally inside the site, you know, and you just see a UI panel that says, all right, let's go. And then you have to figure out what to do. You have to, you know, wear your own harness. And if you make mistakes, you can actually fall and die or your colleague could fall and die. And you are going to feel it in your guts and you are going to feel it in your, your body's going to shake and shiver. You're going to remember it for a very, very long time. And that excites us more than anything, honestly. The number of people that say, you know, I've been working here for 10 years and I never really understood what it's like to be in a confined space or why it's actually dangerous to do one, two, three. There's a huge driver 
for why we're getting a lot of adoption at this moment in time. And how do you quantify safety? So if you say that, you know, people who use your training programs, they end up having safer organizations. What metrics are you measuring there? Is it like, I guess, kind of morbid, but like number of deaths (laughs) or the number of incidents? What are the metrics that you're measuring? Yeah, it's a great question, honestly. I mean, if we can get to that morbid uh, answer, we'd be in a much stronger place because when people start seeing reductions in incidents and fatalities, that's the biggest win for the technology and the product. But that's going to take time. Like it takes, there are so many controls around a safety incident to happen. Right now, the thing we do when we work with our clients is we measure, you know, people's engagement, which is very hard to quantify, but you're suddenly seeing that people are talking about this, sharing it, having conversations about it after they take the training. Two, we've done a study with one of our clients where we did we did around 350, you know, 350 employees went through this and, and took the training and, and we started speaking to them and we've done this with many of our clients. But what we do is we start calling these trainees two weeks down the line, you know, and we've done that with controlled groups where some of them have taken the video-based training and some of them have taken, you know, our training. And we just ask them, like, say, hey, um, do you remember what the safety rules were for this topic? And it always blows your mind when you when you run that exercise because people who watch videos don't have any anchor association to recall the content, right? You watch the video, your brain assumes that it's understood and you move on, but your brain doesn't really store any of that information or it doesn't have a reference, a strong reference for you to go back to and anchor your understanding of that situation. You know, you're lucky if you even you know, transfer any of that into your real, your real life. But when you play a game, it takes you, you know, instantly remember the incident that you experienced. And that's something we make sure we apply and design. Of course, this has been a journey for us. You know, we've engaged with so many simulation scientists. We've done so many studies early on when we were designing the products. And we always get you exposed to very dramatic incidents, no matter what training you take with us, because that's your best anchor to the content. Two things we do that, you know, enable people to learn this so much better. One is we always put you in the driver's seat. We don't give you a lot of information before you have to critically think through your decisions. So you have to like look around, figure out what you need to do. And when you make a mistake, the the game tells you you made a mistake. And when you make just something right, the game feeds back that you did something right. But you critically thinking enables you to dig deep into why you have to do certain things and hence, you know, gets you to understand things at a much deeper level. And the second thing is we get you to experience something dramatic. And, and that's kind of leveraging the memory palace, if you're aware of it. Just if you're in a 3D space and you experience something very dramatic and you know a very robust story, your brain is going to recall that very easily. And that always blows our clients, uh, clients away when they see like 85 to 95% retention rates compared to 7 to 10% retention rates. And yeah, you just see a lot more engagement around the organization. And I'm hoping that in a few years, we will have enough data to be able to share that with the wider public. And in five to 10 years, my God says, and, and I, I really believe it won't be acceptable for you to train people by showing them a video or PowerPoint slide, you know, unless you've actually taken the training and lived through the situations and reacted to these emergent situations and, you know, were emotionally prepared for what those would look like, you're not considered ready to go out there and work. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. 
And can you talk to us about the competitive landscape? So are you taking a challenger or disruptor position in safety training? Is that the positioning in the market or what does that look like in terms of competitors and how you're positioned in the market? Yeah, that's also an interesting question. To be honest with you, we don't spend so much time thinking about our competition. What we know is we're in a market that is so new. Every company we're talking to still hasn't tried, you know, gaming at this quality or that level before. We really believe that you have to be an AA gaming company with the right SaaS knowledge and processes within the space. Most of the companies in the space, and I do believe the space needs a lot of companies. I, I like I really respect competition. I think there are a few that I really like. They're not in the same space that we're building for. But a lot of the companies in the space are training companies that have hired a few 3D developers and plug things together and say, here, we have a virtual reality product. And some of them make you nauseous, as you said, and some of them you know, feel exciting, but don't stick. But what we've built is we've built an optional builder. So we've taken down the building process of like very high quality simulations that are that literally feel like an AAA game that you can do in two weeks instead of four to six months. And we've built categories for industries. So companies that come to us now, we our anchor is safety because when you talk to companies about other products for such a new technology, it's very hard for them to take you in. And that's an assumption. There might be areas there that, that work really well, but just from my experience and, and how I know it, and when a safety manager says, we need the safety product, everyone listens to him or her because of the importance of that topic. So we always get in with safety as an anchor. But the biggest thing we give our clients is the ability to start building content using our tools in real time and kind of building their immersive learning strategy over, you know, over the next couple of years. Our goal as a company over the next couple of years is to open up our tools to the wider developer community to start kind of building and deploying products on top of the same single application that we're putting together. But we are at a stage today that if you lose sight of the importance of content and working closely with clients to get to the 20,000, 30,000, 40,000 resources, then you're just going to be playing around being in a platform with a lot of gimmicky products. You know, you're still early, early enough in the game that you don't have enough companies that have employed this. I don't know of, of many, you know, we're lucky that we have a few companies that made our product mandatory. And, you know, these companies have 15,000 employees that have to take this product to every year, but it took a lot of hard work and focus on, you know, all the small bits and pieces that are required for you to get there. And then once you nail that and you have the playbook, you go back and, and improve the rest of the product to get towards being that true platform and investing and, in, you know, training the market to use your tools. And when it comes to actually building out those modules and the courses, does that fall under the responsibility of learning and development teams or which teams are actually responsible for this? Yeah, so it always depends on, um, it always depends on the topic and the team. So if you're building something like within safety products, we use kind of a safety advisory board. They worked with our clients and we built them very closely with our clients. We got to where we got to now. Now we have, you know, a very strong, robust set that applies to every industry. But within every company, let's say a company has a procedural training for a machinery that they don't want people to fly over to a specific site to take, it's usually the engineer that's responsible for that machinery or the learning department, if there's someone in learning who's an expert in that topic or the learning department co co collaborates with that person. Since we work with large enterprises, there's always a learning function, but they're usually collaborating with a technical expert. And then we literally have junior level designers that just coordinate with them and, and, you know, choose from a set of environments we have. We have character creator that allows them to choose what sort of characters they want, animations, and they just kind of sequence it together. And with a press of the button, it, it's deployed in every person's application and they can test it, play with it. And that's kind of the process we need to keep polishing. 
initially in the company, we thought maybe companies would want to use these tools eventually, but it's clear to us that that's likely not the path because, you know, companies don't create their own videos in most cases. They still use third-party companies to do that. So investing in the developer ecosystem to start using our tools and building for, for the market is likely the next step. And are there any, let's say, like haters to this approach who don't believe in immersive learning or don't believe that it should be game-based? Are, are there any critics of what you're doing? Uh, of course. I mean, like any technology, there are people who resist change or people that have you know negative associations to gaming. But I'd have to say that as long as they're engaged, I mean, we're working with some of the oldest business, like most old school businesses with, you know, very old resources. And I'd have to say that everyone that tries it comes around, you know, or if they try it and they haven't been involved, they might resist it. But if they've been involved and they get into a presentation where someone just talks about the logic of it and the importance of giving that initiative a chance, they come around. I think it's very hard for you to argue that when you're, you know, a third person watching a video that you have no association with compared to someone who is, you know, in the middle of a world that feels good. It needs to feel good and be intuitive enough and not frustrating. It has to be built really well for that user type, but it's very hard for you to argue that, that, you know, the process of you being in the game is not more effective than you watching a video. So yeah, I would say it's natural. It does exist, but we just have to keep going out, you know, making the process of building, deploying, measuring. And, you know, seeing the value easier and better for, for the businesses in the market. And just looking on the website, a few of the logos that I see that I recognize, you have Shell, GE, BP. These are big, big companies, the types of companies that I think every startup founder would dream of working with. What do you think you got right? How were you able to convince them to give you a shot? Because you're not just, you know, like a little widget for a website. This is, you know, a serious thing. It's life and death, it sounds like in some cases. So this is serious technology and it's a serious problem that these big companies face. So what did you do to get them to give you a shot? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's a very complicated process, to be honest. I mean, the simple answer here is it's one of the hardest things any founder can do. And I have the utmost respect for any business owner or, or team member who's, who's been in that process and succeeded. I think I did cry, to be honest, the first time we got a contract, and that's like, what is that, maybe three years ago, the first contract, because of how hard it was. When you think about it, when you start a business, every, all the odds are against you, right? No company wants to talk to you because you're only a few people. Uh, no bank wants to allow you to open an account. No team member wants to be hired by you because they don't know if you're actually going to build something and succeed. And if you talk to investors at the early stages and you say, I'm going to go after a BP or a Shell, they'll just hang up because, you know, the long sales cycles burn, you know, most companies that even try. But I think the conviction I had was around, you know, when it comes to safety, if you're able to focus so much on product, and I knew what was in the market, I knew the, the things that they were trying. If you can focus so much on products and actually deliver a product that, you know, outperforms anything like it. If they try something that is just so much better than anything else they tried, they're going to have to pay attention, especially when it comes to people's lives. And I also knew that within safety, you can never start with smaller companies and then move upwards. You know, big companies are not going to respect the decisions small companies are making, but every company will respect the decisions BP and Shell are making, you know, because they are big enough, they will take the right steps. They will run the right measures with you. So yeah, it was just a lot of hard work. It was, I had to learn game design and, and put a lot of these myself with a very small team initially. 
but we were so committed to delivering, you know, the highest quality that by the time we had our first two modules, and now we have, you know, over, you know, 24 that break into, you know, double that into different industries and different environments. But when we had our first two modules, they trusted us enough that they were willing to support us and reviewing them and giving us the right advisory support to make sure the other eight at the time fit with their requirements. And, and by getting those eights initially, we just ended up with the best, you know, safety training product for that specific market that the two biggest companies are using. And that kind of sucked in the rest of the market. But yeah, I'm summarizing it now, but in short, it's something that, you know, was one of the hardest things I've probably done. And final question, since we're running up on time here, let's zoom out into the future. So let's say maybe three to five years from today, what's that big high level vision that you're working on building right now? Yeah. So I really believe that, you know, my team and I, we really believe that a Roblox like business has a massive opportunity in the enterprise space. So when we think five years, I'm just going to keep thinking enterprise, constantly iterating on the process of building, deploying, scaling the products globally, measuring them to the point where it becomes so intuitive and easy to do that will enable companies to start, you know, transitioning from relying so much on video e-learning content and building these various immersive learning products that could add value and empower their people, you know, from leadership to mental health to safety. So yeah, getting to a place where it's just very easy for anyone with experience in the topic, you know, all the experts around the world that would love to bring some value to companies and build stuff to have a very simple platform that they can use to do so. And yeah, I hope that we can drive that transition by being that platform. Amazing. I love it. Well, we are up on time, so we're going to have to wrap here. Before we do, if people want to follow along with your journey as you continue to build, where should they go? Yeah, so I think LinkedIn would be the best place. That's where I, I post most. Musa Yassin is the name and should be easy. Perfect. We'll link to that in the show notes as well. All right, Musa, thank you so much for taking the time to chat, talk about what you're building and, and share some of those lessons that you've learned along the way. I really enjoyed this conversation and I know our audience is going to as well. So thank you for, for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Brad. Have a good one. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode.